Welcome to Industry Insights, the EFM podcast presented by the European Film Market of the Berlinale. My name is Nadia Denton. I'm a curator and impact producer based in London. This season of Industry Insights has been produced in cooperation with Gotter Institute and supported by Creative Europe Media. This episode has been developed in partnership with Imaginative. Imaginative is the world's largest presenter of Indigenous-made film and screen-based media. They proudly advocate for Indigenous voices. Today, I will be in conversation with professionals from the international Indigenous film community. Leo Kuziol is founder and director of the Rairoa Māori Film Festival. It is the longest-running Indigenous film festival of New Zealand. Since 2020, he has been the Indigenous editor of Letterboxd. Lena Minifi is a mixed-blood Gitzala and British film video artist who resides in Vancouver. Lena produces media, art and independent film. David Hernandez-Palmar is a photographer, video maker, program organiser and journalist. He has produced documentaries for international broadcast and curated Indigenous film programmes in Venezuela and abroad. To my guests, welcome. When we speak of Indigenous cinema cultural cinema of the new world, or even fourth cinema, as Barry Barclay, maker of the first Indigenous Maori feature, coined it. What are we referring to? Well, I'm I'm Leo Koziol. I'm the founder of the first Maori um, film festival here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And and uh, yes, I, I was actually a dear friend of Barry Barclay, and, and uh, he was a film intellectual who studied cinema and and thought, well, there's first cinema, which of course is Hollywood mainstream views propagating a Hollywood view of the world and society. There's the so-called second cinema, which of course is art house cinema, you know, largely driven out of Europe and French cinema, film noir, and so forth. Third cinema is the cinema of the so-called third world, and and uh, they're actually leaders in that space from. Latin America and in Southern Asia. And Barry Barclay uh, put forward a perspective saying, actually, maybe there's a fourth cinema. And this is the cinema of the colonized world, the cinema of indigenous peoples. He actually termed it as the camera on the shore. So here we are as indigenous peoples on our homelands and uh, the colonizers are coming and and we're making stories and telling stories about ourselves for ourselves as opposed to the case of much of cinema that's really been about the colonizer telling the stories of the colonized. Thank you so much Leo. So from your respective readings of you know, the various types of films coming out of uh, the canon of indigenous cinema what would you say is the particular importance of this specific worldview or way of seeing the world? You know, what would you identify as its distinct contribution to world cinema? I think the importance is it goes, it's kind of vast beyond just one medium of film. I'd like to say that a lot of our people who, if they're writers, of course we talk about film today, but our, our writers, our intellects, our artists and our filmmakers uh, have such unique perspectives and views of course all of our nations are different but we kind of come from this philosophical point as well so we, we view everything as interconnected and we view a lot of our ways of like our perspectives of being how we teach things our cosmology of the world uh is embedded within our films and the the storytelling's pretty anti-hollywood it's not necessarily like an abc story um with with a happy ending it, it's it's coming from our deep storytelling practices and, and all just been hand down for like thousands of years. So um, I'd say within film itself, we still bring uh, those unique storytelling abilities um, and, and structures to, to films. And that's why it's super important. Lini, you've touched on something quite important there when you refer to the thousands of years of storytelling that are very much part of the cultures being represented in um, Indigenous cinema. How would you say that the lack of Indigenous film critics impacts the way that Indigenous-led films are viewed, distributed, and ultimately perform at the box office? It's a huge issue, I think, for all BIPOC uh, 
filmmakers and indigenous filmmakers is that the lack of film critics at that level um, are, are mostly dominated by, I'm going to say this older white male um, critics. Uh, and it's, it's like this within art as well, within in fine arts. Um, you have sort of a limitation of understanding um, not only of like just metaphors and similes within the, within the structure of the film, but like within, uh, as I said, like within our philosophy, um, our, our intellectual art and our knowledge systems, uh, it's really hard to be interpreted by some, by somebody who's just consuming sort of what is in their world and deemed to be good. So if you have, you know, how many Marvel critics are there or or action, uh, movie, uh, online film critics, uh, they, you know, have a palette for their, their type of genre and, they like to lean into it and sort of talk about these worlds, but without understanding our world and perspective, it's, it's very difficult. So um, I'd say that they have more say, especially in this digital world for online marketing. If you have a bad film review or if there's a bad film critic that's sort of approved for Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb, they hold more weight if they've the more films that they've reviewed, more likely the more films that they reviewed and the higher they're ranked. Uh, it means probably that they've been in the industry for a long time and are mostly white and male. So it, you end up in this cycle where if you don't have a good film review at the beginning, you're less likely to get at the end uh, or through uh, seeing through film festivals as well as your theatrical release. So it's it's quite a conundrum we're in for, for all BIPOC filmmakers um, to really understand their world. And some people would say, I think the argument to that is like, we better have a better human story. <laughs> but if there's people who like, refuse to kind of watch or, or see themselves within other hum- humanities or other humanic um, stories because they're only like specialty, like, as I said, adventure action or art house um, from a certain country, then um, we, we need more, we need more tastemakers. I mean, we need more culture setters um, that are diverse from, from every realm. In addition to what you're saying about the cultural setters, I'm interested to unpick this aspect of um the extent to which algorithms are maybe driving some of the positioning and visibility of these films online. Good reviews beget good reviews and film awards beget other film awards. It's We're quite in an insular, very small uh, industry, right? We, everybody knows each other and everybody um, is quite aware of what's, what's happening elsewhere. But the way IMDb is set up is if you have more IMDb credits, if you have reviewed many more shows there, if you're an approved person within this software program, which as we know, um, more accessibility, like how many people in our communities or just communities or in, in some of our marginalized communities are like know what IMDb is, even if they're filmmakers, a lot of people are not on there because we're not in sort of traditional mainstream um, filmmaking. Um, so you have this whole thing where the same uh, sort of attracts the more the same when it comes to sort of older white film critics attract more older white film critics within realms and then they get rewarded for that in sort of a point system. So no matter how many people you get on there, um, if you get all your, say, BIPOC friends and you, and you get them all to go there, they, they still count less because they're not in the system and approved in the system. Same thing with Rotten Tomatoes. If you're not a film critic that's had so many reviews, then you're not approved to kind of then... Um, decide what's good and so your ratings are a bit different I mean Rotten Tomatoes has a section for of course audience members it's different than the film critics but the two affect each other with formulas and it comes to math so um, I I really like to want to like to hear what Leo thinks about cultural makers and tastemakers but I I think that we're finding the whole world shifting right now um, in the last um, year and a half, uh, of course, everyone's having these conversations about who gets to curate, who gets to set culture, who gets to set taste, and what eyes are we reflecting, and what is good or bad if if people are just deciding not to see themselves within other within other cultures or realms uh, they like familiar. Um, but I think we're all supporting each other's work, and so I'm excited to see what happens next with cultural tastemakers and. Uh, film critics and I would like to see this happening like you know on social media and which I think a lot of us get to or even TikTok to have film uh, critics on TikTok um, and other forms that um, people can hear and see and it's more democratized. Lena I'll jump in here thank you so much uh, for that lead and yeah I mean I guess so I've been a 
film curator and festival program for a decade and a half now. And when I looked around, you know, there was such a dearth of Indigenous film writers and film critics that I decided to become one. And so I reached out to Letterboxd. Uh, they're an international website with uh, over 3 million members on their social media network. Um, and so I think, you know, numbers-wise, they probably are figuring in some form of algorithm to drive audiences to films. And the unique thing about Letterboxd is that it's completely democratic. You can have a a uh, film critic on there who's uploading their reviews and posting it and giving a film a rating, and his rating or her rating or their rating only counts as much as anyone else's. So it's an incredible democratising process. And then uh, Gemma Gracewood, who's the editor there, uh, she lives in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and, and uh, in New Zealand, I think, you know, the white community, which we call... Pākehā is the Māori word for the white community. Uh, there's actually a different kind of way of seeing and being and living with other Indigenous peoples here in New Zealand. And so she's really supported me to be a native voice on Letterboxd. I'm now the Indigenous editor there. And, and so we had an idea, well, gosh, how do we look at Indigenous cinema? Who are all the different people there? And, and how can we uplift their voices? So we had the idea of establishing a list of 100 native directors and their prominent films. And so, and it's got a really amazing response all around the world. Leo, you created the Native 100 Films and Directors list. Can you tell us how this came about? Oh, well, thank you. So, yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit more about the Native 100 list on Letterboxd and how it came about. Well, the idea really was to try and establish what you might call a canon of native cinema. Who are the most prominent native filmmakers, in particular feature film directors, and what are their best works? At the start, we actually wondered if we'd even get to the list of 100. There's lots of great native directors, but completing a feature is quite an achievement, and actually, you know, getting to 100 seemed like quite a challenge. But we got there. First of all, our research found that there was only a handful of native filmmakers who were able to complete a feature film prior to the year 2000, back in the 20th century. Merita Mitter and Barry Barclay were leaders in New Zealand. Alonis Albomsawin and Chris Eyre made impactful works in North America. And Rachel Perkins and Tracy Moffat had great success in Australia. But yes, like I just said, only a handful of native filmmakers who had completed a feature film by the end of the 20th century. Then, post-2000, there was a sudden blossoming of Indigenous cinema. Commercially successful works and films that ticked all the boxes in the art house world as well. Taika Waititi got an Oscar nomination for his short film Two Cars, One Night, and there were two Camera Dior Khan feature first film winners. Atana Juat by Zacharias Kanuk and Samson and Delilah by Warwick Thornton. So with this blossoming of Indigenous film, you also witnessed a wonderful diversification. More films from women filmmakers, and as I said, we set a challenge to have half of the filmmakers list in our Native 100 list be women, and they are. And also, a rise of queer-themed Native films made by Native queer filmmakers and starring Native queer actors, and very proud of the achievements in that space. We've also seen first feature films from places and cultures who'd never had a feature film made about them before. Films from Rotuma, from Hawaii, from Alaska. So yes, the native list, me and Letterboxd, we put it together, and it's not only the 100 most prominent Indigenous directors, but we also made sure that the one film we picked from each director spoke to lived Indigenous lives. We have fantasy stories or historical stories in pre-colonisation worlds. We have stories set in fantasy and futuristic worlds. But the ones that speak to me the most have actually been the ones all about the lived experience today on the reservations or homelands of Native peoples and also the challenges of the urban Native experience. You know, strangers in a strange land, Native people coming to the city. So yeah, amazingly, we were able to get to 100 films on the Native 100 list. And, you know, it's a real achievement and reflection of the abundance and excitement in the Native film world.
Believe, as you talk, I'm mindful of the fact that Letterboxd is North American based and we're really talking about foreign criticism in the English-speaking world, aren't we? Well, that's an interesting in- interesting question, Nadia, because, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I am a New Zealand-based writer, but I'm actually writing for North American audiences for North American release dates. Uh, there's positives and negatives there. The positive, of course, of course is that if we're covering and and giving a voice to Indigenous filmmakers when their films are going on to stra- streaming platforms or fingers crossed into cinemas, then you know, and then that's actually going to create publicity around them. Twenty twenty one was actually a really intriguing landmark year for Indigenous voices in media, particularly on streaming television as well as streaming film. So you had uh, the film Wild Indian that came out and and there was actually quite a a significant movie star who was attached to Wild Indian as the producer. And of course that was um, the the person who uh, is Jesse Eisenberg. And he worked with the director whose name is Lyle Mitchell Corbin Jr. And they used a prominent actor, they utilised the talents of the prominent actor Michael Greyeyes in the lead in the film Wild Indian. And it's really made a huge impact uh, because uh, Michael Greyeyes is also in a hit new TV show called Rutherford Falls, which has a Native American showrunner. And Rutherford Falls has come out at the same time as Reservation Dogs, which which not only has a Native American showrunner, but has an all-Native cast. And uh, the two producers of Reservation Dogs, who are Sterling Hajo and Māori director Taika Waititi, actually had each episode directed by a different Native American director. And in each of those directors are some of the, you know, I mean, in my opinion, great names in the indie film directing world. Sydney Freeland and uh, Black Horse Low. So, yeah, there's kind of a native new wave. And so, so we published an article on the platform for Letterboxd and just really talked about the native new wave that's emerging across the world, going back to the roots of it with with uh, Mera Tamita, Barry Barclay, Alanis Obamsawan last century, and to where we are now with you know indigenous films actually making impacts on mainstream film festivals all around the world. You know, BIPOC, BIPOC, um, there actually is an I in it. You know, so so there's actually there's been this profound shift. The LA Times wrote a, a, a very significant article on the rise of native native cinema in 2021. So we're at a really unique time, and um, you know, I'm just so excited that Lena and others are doing impact producing to get the the indigenous voices out there, and it's truly a global voice when when you've got folks like David Palmer writing to the the indigenous world. But but just in terms of the English, it's a double-edged sword. In the first instance, it enables peoples from all different cultures to communicate with each other and to tell their stories to each other. But of course it has colonized. And and you know myself here as a Maori person, my mother could tell stories about how they were given corporal punishment at school. They were strapped or caned for speaking their indigenous language, much as happened in the native schools in North America. And so, you know, we've become English language speakers. We can become successful in cinema around the world, but it isn't necessarily something we asked for. It was something that we were colonised to. I think there's something to unpick there really around... um storytelling uh, whether it be in English and indigenous languages but also about the form and certainly I know from some of the research that I've done about a lot of the work coming from the um, indigenous community film canon is that there are particular types of styles of storytelling that don't necessarily translate to European languages. Lena, um, Leo referred to the fact of you doing social impact and 
I know that there are a number of um, key titles you have worked on in recent years in Canada. I wondered if you could talk to us about, firstly, what social impact entails, but if we think that this is one of the critical means to ensure that some of the more nuanced and cultural-specific Indigenous work gets the visibility and engagement that it needs, particularly some of those works that may not be in the English language. There's a few things I like to explain to people, I, I, I think, just to understand sort of the landscape. And it does come down to land and landscape. Um, so geographies, so connecting with each other. We, we never had such a means to connect with each other as Indigenous people across varying lands. So there's around 500 nations in Canada and around, I think, 600 in the States. And we live in vastly different areas. And we we live in our traditional, a lot of us live in our traditional areas. A lot of us live in urban areas settings as well. But to be able to connect online and sort of see things, there's a huge component there. Uh, sometimes our, our people are, are, have less broadband or less access to online world, but it's changing rapidly with cell phones. So we like to see other communities too. We, I watch a lot of newcomer films as well as black films and um, we used to be able to see each other uh, in sort of films that didn't really represent ourselves um, as well as our own indigenous films that have been happening for a long time but there was no way to distribute them and get them out. A lot of filmmakers make them for their own communities first which is great but when one person makes a film then we all see it um, which is this exchange and that's why I think the networking between New Zealand <laughs> And Australia and uh, North America has been so strong um, with the indigenous uh, cinema and all the festival exchange like Leo's involved in. Um, So when it comes to impact, yes, we make our films uh, for our families, for our community, for our nation, for our cousins. But we do make it for others, too, uh, in other nations. And I always advise that you have to think like locally, but sort of act globally in the sense that we are watching films online mostly now on film festivals as well so you have to sort of like look and see and market to your own place but then also sort of decide what the demographics and the psychological makeup of people who like your film so it can be genre film it could be art house it could be traditional but you have to decide who are those people and what their demographics who would like that as well sort of target towards them and build your networks as this sort of uh, iterating and, and, and pulsating network that sort of expands out. So if you want to get into specifics, um, those are kind of more tactics and strategies about how to do that and how to like use the platforms that are out there already. But essentially uh, trying to build up your social, your SEO, your search engine optimization, as well as your discoverability by having a website, having social media, doing all those things online, as well as having film critics cover and review and having your um, your peers review and um, come towards your film. It really enhances, it really is able to kind of cut you through the noise of online I wanted to kind of jump off of some of what you said about the social impact. I think firstly, it'd be great to hear some of the experiences that you've had, like specific strategies that you've used with some of the specific communities, but also um, welcome you to share your own views about how, whereas in contrast, we have a social impact, which is very much community-based and grassroots versus uh, criticism and how that links into sales and distribution and the effect it has on the work um, at that part of end of the industry, if you like. Yeah, so that's it's ha- that's having like a multi-targeted strategy. So you can have all of that. In an ideal world, you can have it all. What you're what you just mentioned, Nadia. You can have your grassroots community screenings and people invigorated within and and your your family and within others and and you know your neighboring nations excited about your film. And, and specifically look at that and, and how to uh, make sure that those community screenings happen and, and people are sort of behind whatever subject matter is in your film. Um, then you also can have an, a robust online social campaign um, targeting sort of mainstream as well as more, um, I called allied uh, groups and partnerships, people that see themselves within your film, uh, whether that be the topic matter, the subject matter, or the type of struggles that people are facing um, with and social issues in your film. And then on top of that is another layer of getting reviews, awards at film festivals, and uh, making sure that people are coming to review on Google and IMDb and and Rotten Tomatoes and those places uh, in order to get more traction 
having a website that people are like constantly going to and, and building numbers behind because they want to see the extra content that you got. So uh, these things are not siloed. They work all in tandem with each other and, and they're all working as, as, as one machine uh, to put your film out into the world. I can jump in here. Um, yeah, so certainly here in, in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, social media can make a huge difference uh, to the success of the film. So uh, there's actually a group of Pacifica Samoan filmmakers who made a film called Three Wise Cousins. They they, they had some um, funding left from a project they'd made, so they independently made a feature film called Three Wise Cousins. And it was word of mouth that drove the success of the film. And and uh, there's a online social platform called CocoNet. I think on you know, it's on Insta, probably on, on TikTok now as well. But yeah, via Instagram and Facebook, with their hundreds and thousands of followers, um, one prominent rugby league player said that he had seen the film, pushed it out on his social network, and they got a bump in box office. They, they, you know, and, and so you've, you've really got to think, how do you reach out to the broader community? Uh, and for, so for, for, for Māori, it's the Pacifica community, it's the Māori community here in Aotearoa. And of course, we have a diaspora all over the world, much like any other ethnic community. So there's a large Māori Pacifica community in Australia, in North America. They're mad keen to see films. Uh, what's missing probably is, you know, a global indigenous platform so that we can start seeing films and audiences all around the world. But absolutely, social media can make the difference between an indigenous film being a hit or just appearing and disappearing. Yes, and I've, I have, sorry, examples. I just didn't know if I wanted to name drop films. Um, but the like at least three of the films I've worked on um, some of them are arguably have more indigenous um, creatives than the others, but um, they three of them went to box office and became number one. All of that was really around social media and, and building champions in the community. Um, but once somebody has seen the film, I mean, that's where they can do uh, be the biggest fan and be the biggest champion and, and push you out to their, um, their friends, family, cousins, and other networks that they're going to, as well as working with organizations that see the value in your film. Because we can't just limit ourselves to just humans. Like there are people who um, have invested interests, uh, whether it be nonprofits or organizations or um, social issue groups or book clubs that really um, can get you out there too. If it's like, say, if something's optioned as a book form. Lena, can you tell us which of the three films you were referring to? Can you cite their titles? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. Um, so the first one had a, a major uh, impact campaign. I was working over two years in Canada and the U.S. for it was Indian Horse, um, based on a book by Richard Wagamese that was already published and got republished during that time. Um, the Grizzlies, um, who one of the producers was Alethea and uh, two Inuit producers on that show that was based on a news article, actually. Um, and then Monkey Beach, which was an Eden Robinson book um, from actually Eden's from Kitimat, and I was raised in Kitimat. Um, and uh, doing making it number one during COVID was was quite difficult. But there's so many champions and fans beside behind her work, and who've been waiting years to see um, any of Eden Robinson pieces become a, a feature. So, and David, a lot of the conversation so far has focused on rightfully how. Um, indigenous filmmakers and critics and members of the community are, if you like, striking back and uh, taking back agency in terms of representations on screen. When we think about the sort of broader canon of um, film history and how Native communities have been represented, particularly in the Americas, and a lot of the very damaging images of, you know, the Native body in cowboy and Indian-themed films, how how can we, as an industry, decolonize this past? How can we kind of look back and sort of heal some of the difficult um, representations that have been created about Native communities as a result of these kind of stories? So I remember when I was, um, you know, first like uh, creating the showcase in Venezuela, uh, the first version of it that people were engaged with the Western movies because there was this binary notion of the good and bad guy, right? 
So when we were discussing who is the bad guy and who is the good guy, you know, people were, were mesmerized. They were just saying, hey, you know, it happens that the bad guy is an Indian just like Tess. So for Latin American uh, region, the ratio of indigenous peoples there in, in, in North America was a fact, right? So when we began to make exchanges and bring movies from there and put subtitles, Spanish subtitles, particle subtitles in the films, people were like, you know, amazed that they were actually alive. And that's uh, one effect that we felt on the region, like the notion that indigenous peoples are no longer alive in North America, that we were the only indigenous peoples still living, you know, after colonization. So that's one uh, starting point from the work that uh, we've been doing so far. So I think, you know, for us to properly use the name or, or the word world, we should be really careful because the world has been, you know, uh, mediated through the English colonizing, you know, worldview. So whatever is outside of the English worldview, it is not uh, part of the world. You know what I mean? When we say, well, you know, these movies are going worldwide. None really goes to Latin America, which is a region made up at least of 20 countries, including the Caribbean basin. So I think it's more like, you know, as, as Leo mentioned, you know, it's, it is not something we ask for. These are the states and the governments and, you know, all the crowns back in the days that uh, colonized us. So I think that's a great responsibility that we have as programmers, creators, and writers to have a more political approach to the content that other indigenous peoples are creating, you know, outside of the, of the English worldview. Uh, what people from Nepal has to say to the rest of the humanity? Can we relate to that message from the people from Nepal? You know, it, these are really, really basic questions that um, I appreciate from the work that Leo made on the list that he created, because that is based on the experience and the approximation of, uh, of, uh, of the access he had to, to milestones uh, movies. On my side from, from Latin American region, I also would love to mention that we have a uh, audiovisual ancestor. Her name is Theophila Palafox. She was part of the first ever worship, cinema worship of indigenous women in Mexico City. Sorry, in Mexico, in the country. And since they were not alliterated, they began to weave the script. They wove the script. And last year we were able to have a, like a kind of ceremony for her to I mean, for us to celebrate the, the, the contributions she's made, you know, she's kind of a pioneer. So how do we put these artificial ancestors in the storytelling and, and, you know, how we can put these thoughts on the table so we can make a draw out of it, you know? It's more like uh, that this, conversa this conversation how, you know, was meant to, to be as other conversations that are ongoing, you know? And I remember that uh, first conversation we had with Leo, you know, there in, in Canada, when we, have, uh, we had a gathering of directors of indigenous film festivals and showcases. Like what is the first thing that we should, uh, you know, like overcome as a barrier, you know, other than the language? It is always like, you know, the indigenous way, something that, you know, again, I appreciate other work that Leo is doing, is that uh, uh, we realize that it is really hard for an indigenous person or a, a person of color to have the work considered by a programmer creator that is not indigenous. Maybe 
someone who is an ally could take care of not only of the quality of the film, but also like the merit of the person for them to be able to complete the film and to even put the film into submissions, right? So I would love to conclude, you know, this uh, word like um, the films that does, that does not get into the the English speaking, you know, uh, circuit or uh, film festival circuits, they do still have chances in Latin America. And again, as I said, uh, there are at least 20 countries. And we would love to have a more, uh, more exchanges, more reciprocity. Um, and it is not our fault. It is more like our responsibility to educate and maybe handle properly the industry, because the industry knows that uh, there is a category called indigenous cinema. But what that means, it is the cinema that tells a story about indigenous person, or it is the indigenous cinema, it is the cinema created by indigenous uh, filmmakers or storytellers, no matter what issue or theme they're working on, you know. So I think, you know, for me that, again, for me what was more exciting and, and hopeful is for us to learn through the films made by Native American people that they were still alive and they're not something from the past. And that's the way here in Latin American region we're taught by the Western films. So, yeah, that will be basically what I can answer, you know, so far regarding the, the, the affection, I mean, the, effect, the effects of colonization and how we can recognize and, 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 and deal with that, you know, uh, not as a thing to, to, to grieve, but more like a thing to sort it out and to solve, to solve with actions. David, what you said about um, Native communities seeing themselves on screen, particularly in the Cowboy and Indian films, and just being marveled at the fact that they were still alive really gave me the chills. And I think that, you know, there's so much pain, obviously, in the past and with what's happened, but clearly there is a bright future and there are so many possibilities. And, you know, I think about, you know, the output of someone like um, Taika Waititi, who... Leah refers to, or his, he, Leah refers to his ascent as the Taika effect and the fact that he's been able to rise up and, you know, bring forth a number of um, Indigenous narratives um, into what that might be regarded as quote unquote mainstream. What do you, would you say, David, has been um, particularly successful in his format um, of elevating? aspects of indigenous culture that previously may have been seen as too niche or inaccessible? I mean, I would say this is a very exciting time because our ancestors, you know, they worked and they uh, paved way for us to be able to have a say in this big conversation right now. And I would love also to celebrate and acknowledge the spiritual meaning of all the contributions that filmmakers have done there in the privilege, um, you know, arenas or scenarios. So I remember when Taika Waititi, uh, when he was given the, the Oscars, he was mentioning the indigenous kids, the indigenous children, which is actually, you know, the present, the present and the future generation. And, you know, for you to have that clarity that is something meaningful and spiritual and that's something hopeful and also like a, a great thing for us to celebrate worldwide, you know, including Latin America. Um, because sometimes it is a tool for us also to challenge, you know, the, the institutes and national film commissions and and other filmmakers, because they, they, they were like being skeptical when Taika won the Oscars, like, you know, yeah, I mean, he's not fully Maori, he's half Jewish. And because if, if, you know, like, meaning that if he was fully Maori, he wouldn't have the capacity to have a, a story to be, you know, worthy of an award. You know what I mean? 
So the notion of the race, ethnicity, it changes also, you know, from region to region. And the discussion started different. So for those that are not indigenous and non-black in Latin America, Tawaititi was able to do so because he was, he was half Maori and half Jewish and not full, not full Maori, if I may say so. Sorry about the word. It sounds really uh, awful to me. And it's like, you know, people also three, see through the lenses of pureness, the quality of the storytelling. So uh, I think it is a good tool for us to use and to teach and to educate, but also to, uh, you know, to have a position on why are we denying or why are you trying to, uh, you know, uh, disregard or discard the spiritual contribution that in this case the indigenous, the, the Maori nation has made, you know, through Taika Waititi. And for me as a filmmaker, creator, and programmer, I think that there are nations that through filmmaking, they open the gates for indigenous nations. And that's something that I truly believe in, and that's something that we should be celebrating. And yeah, and, and I really thank that. Thank you. Leo, amongst the list of 100 native films, it's notable that a, quite a few of them deal with teenage rites of passage. And I'm aware that suicide rates amongst young people in native communities is disproportionate. How effective do you think that cultural cinema of the new world has been in allowing native communities to put a mirror up to themselves? Thank you, Nadia. So, you know, the number one thing that we as Māori have done is to say, okay, we as a community can come together, we can uplift our voices together, and we can start to push for social change. And and one of the social, one of the biggest social changes that has happened has been the, you know, the wonderful cornucopia really of indigenous film that's that's come out. And and I think Lena talked about how, you know, indigenous film can pivot and target other communities. So actually now you can see there's probably a dozen titles of LGBT queer indigenous cinema. That, that go onto the gay film festival circuit all around the world. There's a huge rise in woman storytelling. Um, the Māori word is wahine storytelling all around the world. And, and you know, there's just been a, a real shift. And working with Letterbox to put together the Native 100 list, we definitely worked to ensure that there was a strong queer representation, both in the terms of the stories and the directors themselves. Sydney Freeland, for example, the director of Drunktown's Finest, is a is a trans director. And actually when her film came out in the Navajo community, she hadn't come out as being transgendered. And and so it was very brave of her. And of course the story has a transgendered story in it. And so, you know, we really wanted to have a representation there. The Native 100 list, it's actually 50% female or female identifying and you know we thought that would be a challenge and it was a joy to us to find actually we could do that you know and, and all power to to us Lena that you know because like the thing I find on the festival circuit too you've got the boys club so you've got Taika and Sterling and they get together and they do amazing things but when I see the power Women's circle happening at Imagine Native or here in Aotearoa, that's when I know something special is going to happen. And so I have to mention a film called Night Raiders, which absolutely came out of that space. And so Danis Goulet became very, very good friends with Ainsley Gardner and a whole number of other Māori filmmakers. The New Zealand Film Commission stepped on board with the Indigenous Screen Office in Canada, and so it became an international co-production. There are Māori actors in a science fiction film <laughs> set in a dystopian future in Canada. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so I, I, I helped with Night Raiders as well. Um with the community screenings. Yeah, so they, they really want to do, because of this time during COVID, um, community screenings and um, 
Dennis really wanted the focus to be to get it into community um, with some in the north, and we, we had to try to do that during COVID. Of course, it's been really difficult with First Nations having lockdowns and, and telling people, hey, we have determination for people not to come into our communities. But um, we were able to get back to her um, home community as well as a few others um, for, so they so the, either the students or the, the community could watch it. So I, I don't want to, yeah, we're still in the process. They still want to do more, so... Um, but that goes back to the, the filmmaking of who you make the film for. And of course, it's for the bigger audience. And she got a lot of support with her distributors to, to go to the mainstream. And it's amazing that we're doing genre films. And I can't wait to talk about. Um, I think our blasting our stereotypes out of the water is kind of leading into genre films and leading into our love and like queer sex and um, leaning into our comedy and our humor and sci-fi and indigenous futurism. But um, also, you know, the thing that makes me so excited about the future of Indigenous cinema is hearing Indigenous languages in those films. And so, so Night Raider, uh, you know, had Cree language. So, so basically, she escapes to the, the 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 refugee camp, and there everyone speaks Cree. And you know, it's a dystopian story about a future you don't really want to see, but you can feel joy that you know in this dystopian future they've rediscovered their language and they've reawakened it. It's so exciting. So, are we in a sense saying that um, genre, um, like specific types of genre films, maybe lend themselves to more um, authentic representations of particular aspects of Indigenous cultures, that there's perhaps more space to imagine humanity in a slightly different way. But the thing is, like, there's a lot of need and demand for our sad stories sometimes, right? Because people, I think, see the humanity within struggle. We see all we all see our reflections of our own humanity within other struggles. And we're attached to each other's freedom. But I think that our generation is looking for something different. We're looking to see, lean into our resilience and our love and our stories of hope and sort of succeed and um, not really having to go back there. And I think Gen Y is the first generation that hasn't experienced residential schools directly in their family. Um, and I mean, there at some point, there are so many different feelings, emotions, characters, that they'll be vying to see. And there might be this industry that's sort of asking and begging for, to see our our pain or what uh, Duncan McHugh calls the four Ds of, of sort of storytelling in Native community, like drumming, drinking, decolonization, and... But there's like the four ideas of like, uh, like basically depressing uh, notions uh, of our stories and what they are and where the mainstream will sort of eat them up and sort of... Um, allow themselves to relate and feel sorry or or have some sort of connection to that. But I, I really think we are now to a place where youth are insisting of seeing our joy and our complete um, love and experience and romance and comedy. And I, I want, I'm excited to talk about a couple of those films that are coming up soon this year. But Lena, one of the things that I sort of took from what you were saying is also the thread about resilience and you know there there is a, a strong vein of you know matriarchy within indigenous cultures which is in many respects helped um communities to be able to endure and you know we do have the work of prominent activist filmmakers like Annalise Abomsawin and Maritata Mita. Leo I know that you're major fans of uh, these female filmmakers and they have a, you know, very strong history in terms of how they got into making work and the impact. Um, I wondered if you could talk a, a bit about that. Oh, well, uh, Mira Tamita, who has sadly passed away, but Alanisi who's still with us and is very prolific. They both have a background, actually, you know, I guess being the, the, uh, right woman at the right place at the right time and that they both made documentaries on some quite profound social protests that happened in their communities. So here in here in New Zealand, Mirata Mita was at a place called Bastion Point. It was a it was a Māori land right in the centre of our biggest city, Auckland. The government wanted to turn it into a golf course 
and the native people said no, so they did a land occupation. Meditor's first film, Day 507, is about the 507th day when the police come to remove them. Meditor also made a documentary about the Springbok Tour of 1981. So in 1981, the rugby team from South Africa came to New Zealand to tour. In New Zealand, rugby is God. The All Blacks is the best rugby team in the world. And there were huge protests because, you know, people were saying, no, it's a travesty what's going on in South Africa with apartheid. We need to free Nelson Mandela. And so there were huge protests and Medita traveled from city to city to city recording on film those protests. And, you know, her, her, her film reels had to be smuggled and hidden away from the police. She had to be smuggled and hidden away from the police. At the same time, in 1992, Alaniso Bomsuwin bore witness to the Orca crisis. And so Orca is a town on the outskirts of Montreal. Um, ironically, once again, it's a golf course that they wanted to build on indigenous land and take away from them. And the people of Orca said, no, um, enough, stop. So they put a blockade around their village. And then so did the indigenous people of neighbouring Kanawage. And in Kanawage, it just so happened that one of the main north-south routes into Montreal goes through their reservation. And so there was a huge crisis there. The people were shot the the army had to come in and you know and so Alanis, much like Meritamita, was there behind the scenes recording it all. She of course would have to be taken to safe houses so that, that she would be protected. She had to, you know, protect her film materials and and so both of them made these very landmark films, Patu and uh uh Sitakia two hundred and seventy years of resistance and when they met it was a meeting of minds because you know somehow they'd been doing this parallel to each other on the other side of the world and and so so from there Medita found that she could achieve a lot of working with indigenous peoples internationally so she became an advisor to the Sundance Institute she became a lecturer on indigenous cinema at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu and you know so many people tell me how Merata Mita mentored them in their filmmaking to this day and much the same with Alan Alanis. And so, you know, they're the godmothers of film. Merata's son, Hippie Mita, actually made a film called uh, Merata Mita, How My Mum Decolonized the Screen. It's a beautiful film. Uh, and one of the producers of that film is Chelsea Wynne Stanley, who, you know, is a latter-day Merita Mita in my mind. She's got all these doors that can open in Hollywood, and Merita, the film, went straight to Netflix, thanks to Array Distribution. Same with an, another film that Māori woman filmmakers made called Cousins. It's on Netflix USA. Go watch it now, everyone. So, yeah, just, just so excited, and... Uh, yeah, just thank you so much for having me on this podcast. David, just in conclusion, I wanted to take a point that you've made and kind of tie it up with my initial question. You kind of talk um, quite touchingly about the sort of spiritual relevance and um, content of some of the work coming from Indigenous communities. And I suppose I wonder, is this really what might be one of the significant sort of contributions or offerings can be when we look at, um, you know, the work that we refer to as cultural cinema of the new world. Is there some kind of aspect of spiritual storytelling or way of interpreting things that happen in the spiritual realm or that have happened to these communities that can offer us a new kind of visioning or experience on the big screen? So, you know, I think there are two wisdoms I would love to quote. The first one uh, was mentioned by um, Alton Krenak. He's uh, a Krenak storyteller from Brazil. He says, uh, for every story we tell, we postpone the end of the world. 
meaning that, you know, engineering storytelling has always a proposal that is against of the apocalypse or so the notion of the, 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 the world's going to end because of our fault. And indigenous communities are the, are the least responsible for the damage of, to earth, but are, you know, the most uh, vulnerable communities when it comes to think about, you know, climate crisis. And the second wisdom I would love also to, uh, to mention is that uh, indigenous women from Brazil they have a proposal through storytelling, meaning healing the earth. So they say, uh, let's uh, reforest our minds so we can uh, set free our hearts. And I think that's the, that's the two wisdom I would love to, you know, to pass along as a way to connect with, with, uh, with the topic, with the question, and also with the contributions that, uh, that goes beyond butter you know, borders. Uh, and I think that something that also we thank to Jinjin Cinema that we can also name ourselves with the name of our nations. We can, uh, you know, like uh, have a depiction of who we are through cinema. And we can also like do thought provoking, you know, statements to the world. Not only because we're telling our stories to our own people, but also like, uh, you know, stories are a contribution to the world, um, to humanity, to all living beings. And that's the right that we have as living beings to have a story to be told uh, in all meanings, you know, poems, songs, um, movies, a photo, uh, a car. Yeah. Brilliant. That's a very nice note on which to conclude our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And again, I, I would say that, you know, one of the, of the features that uh, our people have is that we try, 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 and we insist. And, and you know, uh, sometimes we, um, even though we may part of the, the whole, you know, technology and cinema, Sometimes we are, you know, victims of the digital gap, but here we are. We overcome all the challenges so we can tell the story. So thank you very much for the space. For those listening to this podcast, Unfamiliar with Cultural Cinema of the New World, which two titles would you personally recommend and why? You go first, Lena. Okay. Uh, hi, Lena here. I was going to recommend um, one that was at the market, uh, I think it was last year uh, or the year before, but um, at EFM, uh, Beans by Tracy Deer, which is about sort of a coming age story about a young girl who's sort of living through the Okanaga, the, the Ganawage crisis um, uh, and takeover that happened and where the army and military came in and she's sort of dealing with not only her coming of age story and growing into a young child to a woman but she's facing other things that are happening in her community um and then uh, also run one run that's at the efl market this year um and hopefully some people will pick it up but run one run is by zoe hopkins the director it does have um again mohawk language within the film but primarily it's this comedy and an anti-rom-com and i'm so excited that we have an indigenous comedy the world needs it right now um we need funny we need comedy uh we need laughter and i just can't wait for the world to see this I'm also going to recommend a new film on the European film market slate. It's called Fina. It's directed by Paula Fetu-Jones, one of my favourite Indigenous uh, female wahine film directors. And uh, Fina is the story of Dame Fina Cooper, who in 1992 walked the length of New Zealand aged 88 to protest Māori land marches and actually that was in the 1970s and I will also recommend a film called Waru uh, Waru remedied the fact that uh, for a very long time Merita Mita was the only Māori female director of a feature film and so Waru is an anthology feature and yes one of the directors is the aforementioned Paula Fetu-Jones amongst seven or eight other incredible female Māori directors. So, Waru, I think you can go and watch it on streaming services. Fina, you're going to have to wait till it comes out on the festival circuit all around the world. So, kia ora. 
This brings us to the end of our discussion on Indigenous film criticism. In conversation, Leo, Lena and David eloquently made a case for nothing about us without us. That is, the recognition of cultural cinema of the new world by the international film community through the lens of individuals from these cultures. We have learned about key figures such as Annalise Abomsoin, Meritata Mita and Taika Watiti who are advancing the position of native cinema. All of these individuals and many more feature amongst Leo's 100 native films list on Letterboxd. I hope you will tune in to future episodes of Industry Insights. Our next podcast will explore activism, filmmaking and sustainable careers for disabled film creatives. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and on the website of the European Film Market, www.efm-berlinale.de. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.